take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you came in today and do not have a Bible, we do have some on the table in the back. We welcome you to just go grab one of those and you can keep it and take it home with you. I pray that will be encouraging to you as you continue to read it and grow in your love for Christ and his word. Uh, if you do have a Bible, though, Ecclesiastes, right in the middle of your Bible, after the Psalms and Proverbs. So this is part of what the Bible or what Bible scholars often refer to as the wisdom book. And so uh, this is a book about walking in wisdom by fearing God, by walking fully aware of how big and powerful God is. That's what it means to live in the fear of God. You take him seriously. And you do so by enjoying the life he has given you. That's what this book is about. This book repeatedly tells us, though it is rather bleak in some ways, this book is rather bleak in some ways, it repeatedly tells us, in the bleakness and in the hardship of life, enjoy what God has given you. Enjoy the life he has given. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6 falls right into that um, message, the central message of this book. This is a bleak book, but it is realistic and it is honest. And so as we uh, read this passage together today, I hope it will resonate with you. I hope you will hear the truth of it and echo the truth of it in your own heart and say amen in your own heart as you read, wow, this is a really hard world to live in, but God has been really generous toward us. His grace is infinite toward us. And so let's read this passage. I'll read aloud. You follow along. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This past Wednesday night, hundreds of people went to bed in a luxury condominium complex in South Florida, not aware that they may never see the light of day again. And certainly as workers to this very moment dig through the rubble, cranes in their bare hands, 
and wheelbarrows and whatever else they can use to see if there might just be somebody else alive in that pile of rubble. From the interviews that are available on the news, most people are beginning to realize the hope that they once had is disappearing, that their loved one might still be alive. Other hard things happened this past week. At one point, I was listening to the news, and Clarissa walked in, and she goes, what are you listening to? This is so discouraging. It was one bad story after another. You hear about floods, or you hear about wildfires. You hear about record-breaking heat, or you hear about hot air balloons crashing. You hear about a train hitting a car and killing young children. You hear about all this garbage. And you say, man, what is wrong with this world? And that's the message that Ecclesiastes tells us again and again. This is a hard world to live in. People have their lives snuffed out too soon. People have their hopes shattered, their money taken from them. Their loved ones leave to go love someone else. This is the world that we have been given to live in. And it's the world that we have been given to glorify God in. And so in describing the hardships, the evil of this world, that life is unpredictable. That's what this message really, this book really tells us. Life is unpredictable, both in what's going to happen to you and in when it's going to end. Those people who went to bed on Wednesday night in their safe, comfortable home did not expect that the building was going to collapse that night. Life is unpredictable. And so what do we need to believe? Well, the truth that Solomon compels us to believe in this passage is that God is the generous giver. He's the generous giver. And so our response is to use the life he has given you for his glory. Not for yourself, not just to make your life as long as it can be or as happy as it can be, but to glorify him, to make your life about him, to worship him. And so when you hear that, that life is about glorifying God, you should ask this question. This question should be on the tip of your tongue in your heart, so to speak, to mix metaphors there. How do I glorify God? What do I do to make my life count for his glory? And this passage answers that in two different ways. In verses 1 through 9, which is really the heart of this passage, enjoy what God has given you. That's how you glorify God. It's not a way to get around the hard things of life. It's facing the reality. Life is hard, but God is generous. And so your response then is to enjoy what God has given you. And as we'll see in a little while in verses 10 through 12, the second way you glorify God is by walking in wisdom in the short time God has given you. So enjoy what God has given you and walk in wisdom in the short time God has given you. Let's look at verses 1 through 9 as we begin. And what he's describing here, what Solomon is describing here, is that living life without enjoying what God has given you is a miserable existence. It is a terrible experience to have great things from God and not enjoy them. And so he describes this problem in verses 1 through 2 especially, and then the rest of verses 1 through 9 kind of flesh this idea out some more. But look at what he describes in verses 1 and 2. First of all, he says there's an evil. It is an evil, not evil itself. It is a hardship. It is 
something that shouldn't be this way. That's what he means by saying there is an evil. There's something that's wrong. And I've seen it. So it's something that's observable. And he's been talking throughout the last several chapters about what he has seen over and over again. So I've seen something that's wrong. That's not the way it should be. And it's under the sun. And that phrase, which shows itself up, or shows up several times, I mean countless times almost, in this book of Ecclesiastes, is essentially the idea of living life in a fallen world. So this whole book of Ecclesiastes is a long meditation on what it looks like to live in a Genesis 3 context. A context where people rebel against God and do exactly what he has said not to do. And as a result, God cursed the world. Romans 8 is clear about this as well. God chose to put, to subject the world to hardship. And this phrase, under the sun, I've seen evil under the sun, and evil under the sun, is saying this is what it looks like to live in that Genesis 3 world, in a fallen world, a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. And this problem, this evil, lies heavy on mankind. There's something that grieves Solomon. It affects him with sorrow. Have you felt that way recently? Have you listened to the news or flipped through your Facebook feed or had a conversation with someone and been heavy about it? Boy, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever had somebody call you and say, my spouse just left in a rage and I don't know what to do? Or someone say, my boyfriend just broke up with me, and I don't know what to do. Or my child just said, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, and I don't know what to do. And you have these hardships, and it lies heavy on you. That's what Solomon is describing here. That weight of sorrow that is incomprehensible. Here's what that problem is. A man to whom God gives everything he could want. What are those three categories that he describes? Wealth, you have money in your bank account. Possessions, you have cars in all your garages. You have a beautiful house. You have a beautiful yard. And the third thing is you have honor. Rich talked about Kobe Bryant in Sunday school class this morning. He had all the honor he could possibly want. He had all the fame he could possibly want. But what you hear people describe is, you know, I like being famous except for when it affects me negatively. Except for when I want to just walk into a grocery store and buy a gallon of ice cream and I can't get out of the store because people want to take selfies with me and get me to sign their shirts and whatever else. You like to have honor until it affects you negatively. But here's a man who has everything he could possibly want. But look at that next line. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. And this means, church family, that everything you have is from God. And even the ability to enjoy life is a gift from our generous God. He wants you to enjoy your life. God doesn't want you to be negative and despairing and living like Eeyore. That is not the Christian experience and it's not the Christian perspective on life to walk around saying, Woe is me all day long. Look at that. The wind just knocked my stick house down again. Guess I'd better go rebuild it. Yes, I read Winnie the Pooh a lot to my kids. But that's not the Christian perspective on life. Nor is the Christian perspective the Pollyanna perspective. Like, let's just play the glad game and ignore the hardship. Solomon would have us do neither one of those. He would say, life is really hard, so forget the Pollyanna part. But life is really good because God gives you the power to enjoy life. 
So that's critiquing the Eeyore response. Life on this fallen planet is hard. It does weigh on us. Someone can have everything he possibly wants and still not enjoy them. And instead, he says, a stranger enjoys them, which we realize we do that. So, for instance, maybe somebody who created the chair that you're sitting in never had a chance to enjoy the chair that you're sitting in. You're the stranger who's enjoying it. Somebody painted these walls. Somebody built your car. Somebody built your house. And you're the stranger who enjoys it, even though he didn't get to, even though he doesn't get to appreciate all his labor. And he says, this is vanity. This is an enigma. Why God would have created the world this way. Why the fall, the curse from Genesis 3 affects us this way. That a stranger enjoys what we should enjoy ourselves. And he describes for the third time in just a a short period, going back to the second half of chapter 5, he says this is a grievous evil. It's not just sort of bad. This is really bad. That somebody could enjoy could have everything he wants and not enjoy it. So here he's going to play this idea out a little bit more in verses 3 through 6. Throughout the Bible, one way that you can tell that somebody has a good life is if they have lots of children and they live lots of years. And that's what Solomon's going to approach here. That's this idea that you surely, if you have all the kids you want and you live a really long life, this is going to be a good life. He says that's actually not necessarily the case. If a man fathers, in verse 3, a hundred children, well, maybe Solomon's talking about himself in this context, and he lives many years, and he'll come back later to talk about how many years that just might be, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. This goes back to verse 2. He lacks nothing of all that he desires. So here he is not satisfied with life's good things. A stillborn child's better. That is a strong statement. Having what you want, this is the way we think about it, having what you want should equal being happy. Wealth, possessions, honor should equal happiness. And he says, this is not the case. There's no guarantee that this will equal happiness, even having lots of children and long life. And in fact, there's no guarantee, this phrase in verse 3, that he has no burial. There's no guarantee people will even care when you die. That doesn't sound pleasant. I mean, personally speaking, when I die, I hope people cry a lot. Sort of. And this author is saying, there's a chance that you're going to die and no one's even going to know. No one's even going to care. They're just going to put your body in the ground and move on. And you're going to be one other nameless face now gone. In this case, he says, if you don't have everything that you thought you should get, everything that you hoped you would achieve in life, all the happiness you thought you would enjoy, it's possibly better that you were never born at all. It's possibly better you were like a stillborn child. That's what he describes in verse 3, and verse 4, and verse 5. I just texted a friend last night whose wife gave birth to a stillborn child a few months ago, and this is what my friend said. 
we were to start reading, it was fairly long. He says, I take comfort in knowing Jonathan won't know sin, pain, and heartache. That's what Solomon's describing here. It's better to not know that sin exists, that pain exists, and that the world's a really hard place to live. And so in that case, that baby Jonathan who was stillborn in Alabama a few months ago is better off than the guy who lives in the huge house with all the cars and all the money he could want and doesn't enjoy a day of his life because he always wants more. It's like the dog in one of Aesop's fables who looks in a reflection pond and sees the bone in his own mouth and lets go of the bone to get the reflection and loses what he had. And this is vanity. This is an enigma, Solomon would say. It's a grievous evil. A stillborn baby is born in darkness. His name is covered in darkness. He has no reputation. He has no experience. He has no knowledge. But he finds rest as opposed to the person who had it all. And so he says in verse 6, even though this wealthy person should live a thousand years twice over. Doing the math means he lives for 2,000 years. No one's ever done that. What he's saying is, even if you had the longest of long lives, lives, it is not satisfying. It is actually worse than not living at all. Everyone goes to the grave, no matter how long or how short their life. That's what verse 6 says when, when he asks the question at the end of verse 6. Do not all go to the one place? And he's talking about the grave, the ground, the dust. You return to the dust from where you came. Doesn't everybody go there? Yes, is the answer to that question. And so That's why Aaron Burr can sing in the musical Hamilton Death doesn't discriminate between the sinner and the saint, but it takes and it takes and it takes. It's going to take you. It's going to take me. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Adam all die. Every single person in this room is going to die. That's what it means when in Adam all will die. That's what Paul says. So if you're not a Christian here and you hear these words and you came here hoping to get a spring in your step from hearing from the Bible today, I'm sorry, first of all, this passage is dark. This book of Ecclesiastes is dark, but it's realistic, it's honest. No one can deny that this is true. You've been to funerals, and I would encourage you, go to more funerals because it's good for you. And that's in the passage that Josh will preach next week, chapter 7. It's good to be reminded you will die. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, you'd say, how is this supposed to help me? Well, what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 is, in Adam all die, but in Christ, those who are united to Christ, all will be made alive. You'll have life and flourishing forever in God's glory and in his presence. And so, if you're not a Christian and you say, I want to be part of that life rather than that death, what the Bible would tell you is, that you turn from your sin. You recognize that you are part of the problem. That your sin is evil against God. That you grieve God in the choices you make, in the thoughts you think, in what you do. 
and what you see and what you say. But that forgiveness is in abundant supply through Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. Because Jesus took your sin and died on a cross and was buried and then walked out of that grave. That's why you can have hope. That's why you can be made alive in Christ. And so your response is to recognize your sin and to turn from your sin and to put your hope in Jesus Christ and the fact that he lived the perfect life that you were supposed to live but had no chance of living because of your sin nature. So if you have any questions about that, we would urge you to to catch any one of us after the service. We would delight to tell you about how Jesus can wash your sin away. There is a fountain filled with blood, we often sing a song 250 years old. And that fountain is filled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And you can be one of those who has their stains washed away today. Verse 7 reminds us that the toil of man is for his mouth. Have you ever thought of it in those terms? That the reason you go to work is so you can eat? So you can put food into your mouth? But his appetite is not satisfied. Surely you know what that means. Surely you've eaten a Thanksgiving meal. Let's say 12 o'clock on the last Thursday in November. And you love every part of that meal. About four hours later, you get the leftovers out. And you have a second meal. Then you have some pie. And the next day, you take the bones from the turkey from the day before. And you make another meal out of the soup. And then you have the leftovers again that night. And the problem never goes away. You're still going to be hungry again. What Solomon says is that's a spiritual reality, even more than it is a physical reality. The fact that we're hungry and thirsty points to the fact that we as Christians are to hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus says. But all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? In other words, both the wise man and the fool are going to die. The person with the two PhDs is going to die just like the person who dropped out of sixth grade. The wise and the fool will both die. But he does say that the poor man has some advantage. Look in verse 8. What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? What does he have? He has the ability to recognize that what's right in front of him, what's in the sight of his eyes in verse 9, is better than wishing he had something he doesn't have. Have you ever given a meal to a homeless person and seen the look of gratitude in their eyes? Because they have a meal in their hand. And like the proverb, not biblical proverb, but the proverb nonetheless, better is a bird in hand than two birds in a bush. Better is a meal on your plate than the idea that there could be better things out there. And in verse 9, this also is vanity and a striving after wind, this idea that you could just keep wanting and keep wanting and never get what you want. And this is, I believe, the last time this phrase about being a vanity and a striving after wind appears in this book. So this seems to be a pretty important dividing point in this book, kind of like we're at the halfway point now of Ecclesiastes. It's a striving after wind. We've said this again and again. It's like you're chasing after the breeze, trying to get your hands around it, and you never will. It's invisible, and it mocks you for even trying. And that's what it feels like to keep trying to be happier by getting more and achieving more in life. Letting your heart always crave more is like chasing the wind. So 
So living life without enjoying what God has given is a terrible experience. That's what verses 1 through 9 tells you. And so, by implication, what Solomon is telling you to do is to enjoy the life that God gave you before your life is taken away. Before you no longer have time to enjoy it. This past week, I learned that a man named Conrad Owen Reichert died. And that may not be significant to you, and frankly, it's not really to me either, either, even though I found out that he's my first cousin twice removed. And I was contacted by his lawyer. They're trying to establish his next of kin. And I didn't even know this person existed, and evidently not many other people did either. Now he's dead. Now his days to enjoy his life are gone. And you don't know how many more days you have to enjoy. And so I would urge you, Solomon would urge you, the Lord would urge you, to take joy in what God has given you. Enjoy your family. Listen to the laughter of your children and of your spouse. Enjoy watching a baseball game or reading a good book or sinking your toes in sand or sinking your teeth into a delicious piece of meat or a delicious piece of bread. These are gifts from God. And Solomon would say, take them and enjoy them and give thanks for them as a way of glorifying God in this unpredictable world that we live in. Verses 10 through 12 are really a hinge to the rest of the book. Okay, so if you're installing a door in a basement bathroom, for instance, uh, you have a hinge, and that hinge tells you where the dividing point is. And that's what verses 10 through 12 are. And what we have here is a transition into the last half of the book, which especially emphasizes walking in wisdom. Solomon has talked a lot about what, it, what his experiences were, and what he realized was we should pursue walking in wisdom to the glory of God while walking in the fear of God. And so in verses 10 through 12, walk in wisdom in the short time God has given you. And I will admit that the word wisdom does not show up in verses 10 through 12, where I'm getting this idea of walking in wisdom is the fact that he asks a question, what's good for man? And he answers that in chapter 7 through 14 with the answer, walking in wisdom. That's what's good for man. And so we're kind of front-loading, or yeah, front-loading this idea of, of walking in wisdom, which we'll look at really in the second half of this book. So walk in wisdom in this short time God has given you. He says, whatever has come to be has already been named. He said the same thing earlier in the book, just with different words. How did he say it then? There's nothing new under the sun. Here he says there's nothing that hasn't already been named. You're having the same experiences that everybody else who has ever lived is having. And it's known what man is. Sounds like a bit of a strange statement. I think what he's saying is man is a breath. That's what he's been saying over and over again. Man is dust. He said that over and over again. Man comes naked and leaves naked. That was in the last passage, and he was quoting Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. In other words, you don't leave life with anything, no matter how much you had in your home or in your bank account. And so, it's known what man is, a short breath, here for a moment, then gone forever. And he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. And the question you should ask yourself is, who's this one who's stronger? And I think the passage would, would tell us it is the Lord himself. We should not dispute with the Lord. We should not argue with God. The more words, the more vanity. In other words, when we just talk a lot, it's just like a bucket of hot air. It doesn't really do anything. It's like taking a big 
container of cotton candy and taking a bottle of water, a bottle of water is pouring over it and it just disappears. And that's what it's like. The more we talk, the more emptiness there really is. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. I basically memorized that verse from reading it so many times over throughout this series so that frequently Clarissa will tell me that whenever I quote that, she'll say, boy, you are a real delight to live with when I say something like, yes, I will do this in my vain life that passes like a shadow. So preaching through Ecclesiastes is good for your marriage. That's what I have learned from this. But what he's telling you is live in light of the end. Your life is a shadow. It's gone. It's short. It's a breath. James picks up on this idea. And often I wonder if James is quoting Ecclesiastes or at least certainly alluding to Ecclesiastes when he says, life is a vapor that is here for a moment and then vanishes away. An author named Matt McCullough, who's a pastor in Nashville, I've quoted from him several times, talks about how we should live in light of the end, in light of the fact that death has intruded in life. This is his book, Remember Death. And he says, death is not the natural end to a merely biological life. Death is an intrusion into the perfect world of the creator designed by that same creator to make a point. Death is a punishment for human pride. He goes on to say, death enters the human story as an intrusion, something fundamentally unnatural. It isn't the conclusion of a life's cycle that has run its course. It's a punishment perfectly tailored to fit the crime of human sin. That's what our life is. That's what our death is. And so we live today in light of the end, in light of the fact that in the unpredictability of life, we don't know when the end will be. We don't know how it's going to come. And so we, we give thanks and we walk in wisdom by enjoying God's gifts. We don't worship the gifts. This is where we really veer off the right path, is when we take what God has made that's good and we turn it into something that we say we have to have or we will not be happy. We have to have more or we will not be happy. Enjoy the gifts, but don't worship the gifts. A missionary once said, only one life and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So enjoy your life and use it for God's glory rather than your own reputation or your own accumulation of goods. Enjoy the beauty of the life that you have, not the life that you wish you had. You wish that your marriage were different, that your children were different, that your house were different, that your yard were different, that your car were different, that your job were different. All these variables in life, you have what God gave you. Everything you have is from God, and even the power to enjoy them is from God. And so Solomon would tell you, enjoy what God has given you and walk in wisdom in the time that God has given you, because life is a fleeting vapor. About 15 years ago, a young man had just finished his first year of college. He was working at a Christian camp for a summer. He had climbed a tree to, uh, with, you know, he was strapped to the tree to help cut down some dead branches on it. But what they didn't realize when they put him up on that tree was that the tree itself was completely rotten out. And the tree snapped underneath him. And the weight of the tree crushed him between that tree and the cabin that he landed on. And he died 
instantly. He was 18 years old. I was at that camp that day, and it was sobering to watch a lot of other 18 to 20-year-old guys and girls who knew him and who were friends with him, and they were watching their own lives flash before their eyes. They were realizing, I could have been that person working in that tree today. He was 18. Solomon would tell you, friends, you don't know whether you're going to live till you're 18 or 81 or somewhere in between or somewhere beyond, but take the life that God has given you and enjoy it, live it for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we want to live for you. Our lives are not our own. What we have does not even belong to us because it is a gift from you. And so we pray that you would help us not to find our worth or our joy or our value in wishing we had more, but to find our joy in you in all that you have given us. We pray that you would give us a right perspective, not the Eeyore perspective and not the Pollyanna perspective, but a right perspective of how to enjoy our lives and to do so for your glory in this short time you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.